When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is someone who I thoroughly enjoyed listening to for her infectiousness. And excitement about movies. Um, in a recent episode of the podcast that she co-hosts uh, called Cultural Capital Podcast, which is really excellent, um, a very detailed and in-depth bunch of cinephiles like unpacking the week-to-week movies, but particularly the last few episodes unpacking the Melbourne International Film Festival. Um, one of her co-hosts, Andy Hazel, who I'm lucky enough to like, be sort of uh, joining with in the actor film festival ranks, said, oh, I've seen this film. And I think he was talking about Shoplifters, the film that won the Palm Door. And my co-host that's about to talk to you, like, stopped the podcast dead in its tracks and said, you've seen that film, like, like interrogated him across. And I thought that is the perfect person. That is exactly the kind of person you want in your <laughs> corner as a movie geek and, and a complete cinephile is someone who, like, harasses you to find out how you saw a film they really want to see. Her name's Eloise Ross. Um, Elo to her friends on the podcast. I'll see if she lets me call her that. PhD in sound in classical Hollywood, program director of the Melbourne Cinematheque. And as I said, the co-host of the Cultural Capital Podcast, Eloise, welcome to One Heat Minute. Hi, Blake. Thank you so much for having me. That was quite an introduction and I feel very honoured. It's wonderful to be here and I can't believe I'm joining such an esteemed list of your previous co-hosts on this, this, you know, discussion of heat. It is a gargantuan list and it's uh, getting more and more intimidating by the day and it even scares me, Eloise. I think two seconds before we started recording, Eloise was like, how many more episodes have you got to go recording this thing? 93 after this one. So like it's a good number. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good number. It sure is. It's a good number um, of how many we've got to go. And look, Eloise has come on the show. I'm excited to talk to her. Um, and... Uh, I'm excited to bring more. Uh, it's basically what what you've cottoned on to, Eloise, is this show is my great excuse to do two things. Number one is, um, and someone actually pointed this out on Twitter the other day. I can't remember who, so I will credit you as soon as I pull up the tweet. <laughs> but it was like, Blake has the great ability of like pulling up my favorite people on Twitter to be on One Heat Minute. And that is basically what I do. This is my f- favorite film of all time. I'm discussing it one minute at a time. And I pull up people who I like to uh, watch on Twitter or like to read on Twitter in their short bursts of Twitter or podcasts or things that I like. I'm like, that person would be great to talk to. And that's who I'm going to talk to on One Heat Minute. So thank you so much for joining me. I know you've been 
completely uh, uh, exhausted cinema-wise at the recent Melbourne International Film Festival. What was your tally? I was an intimidating list that you were talking about going to see. What was your end tally? Right. Well, as you've already said, I tend to be over-enthusiastic about a lot of things. So I actually didn't end up seeing that many at the festival. I think I got to 18 or 19. Wow. Um, but I'd seen a couple at home and a few already overseas. So I was, I think, you know, quite lucky to see a, a broad enough scope. Broad enough yeah. scope. You got a good palette of what MIF was. How many films were screened this year? Like 300 odd? Is that like that in Sydney? But basically. 90 or something, including wow. the VR and. Um, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, the VR. And I saw the Simon Liang VR, um, The Deserted, which was great. Although I hate wearing that thing on my face, but yeah, <laughs> it, it was really beautiful. I, I wonder, like I hear about these great VR installations. I haven't seen many of them myself. And I'm like, are they ever going to just be downloadable <laughs> or, or on the, no. on the PlayStation store? Like you can just go on if you're lucky enough to have like PlayStation VR at home and just like dive into a movie. I think there's like one Nicolas Cage movie, a terrible Nicolas Cage movie that's in VR as well as uh, 2D. Okay, well, I'm hanging out for it. Something for you to look up for. <laughs> Something to look forward to. Look, guys, we're at the 77th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime epic heat. Um, this uh, minute follows on. You would have heard the recent episode with Mr. Ian Barr. If you haven't, um, have a listen. Um, we're diving into, um, uh, uh, for folks who are sort of following along and not, aren't sure where we're up to, um, we're exactly in the midst of a really dramatic moment between Tom Sizemore's character, Michael Chirito, and Robert De Niro's character, Neil McCauley. Michael has always been a soldier um, for Neil and kind of is great at taking orders. And I think this moment is a really great one that we're going to unpack about him sort of having to actually make and assert a decision um, around whether they stay in this game because the cops are on their tail. And if they actually listen to Neil's philosophy, the heat is around the corner. They should just drop everything and leave. But this score, maybe it's big enough. Maybe the juice is worth a squeeze. So Eloise and I are going to watch the minute. You guys are going to listen to it. And then we're going to come back and chat about it. Oh, whatever. Whatever. No, not on this one, Michael. On this one, you're on your own. I figure this is the best thing to do. If this is the best thing to do. I got plans. I'm going away after. So for me, the reward is maybe worth the stretch. Well, Elaine takes good care of you, you got plenty put away, you got T-bonds, real estate. If I were you, I would be smart. I would cut loose of this. <laughs> well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. You got a great line in this movie, an enviable line for many guests before you, which is so cool, and I'm so glad. For for (laughs) us, the action is the juice. I feel like I am going to envy a line in the next minute, and I think you know which one I mean. Do you know which one I mean? I do indeed. (laughs) It is is exactly – it's actually two minutes away is the the great-ass minute, a much-sought-after minute in in One Heat Minute. It's so weird – 
people say like, oh, you've got to have people lining up to do the cafe scene. And I said, mm. I think people have thought that I've got people lining up, so they never ask if they <laughs> could do that episode, so they don't. And then the other big scene is like the action shootout. And I've really only got one person, a great person, the lovely director, Mr. Joe Lynch, who I know is a fan of the podcast. So Joe, if you're listening, hello. And I hope you're um, having fun on the Point Blank set with Frank Grillo and uh, and and. Project War Party, Joe Carnahan and the like, Anthony Mackie. Um, but yeah, so he's the only guy that I've lined up for that action set piece. But the action is the juice. It's the it's that's what this movie is. Yeah, I find this this minute really interesting because I think, I mean, I've paid a lot of attention to it in the last couple of days and weeks, and so I think I have gotten a lot out of it. But on the surface, this is kind of a really mediocre not mediocre not much happens in this minute no you're right it's just a conversation like it's on one set the editing isn't all that exciting the music is not doing anything um and so it's really quite plain as far as you know the minutes in heat go but it's so essential to the entire film yes basically you know the first half and the second half of the film um rely on this minute to, to get things going. They do. This minute is a pivot point, this entire scene, which seems so out of place. I think you're completely right. There's this, especially because it's like a minute where there's so much happening in the drama of the scene that kind of feels like it's just rushed past. Like it's the first time that Chris Hillis has ever t- heard that Neil's going away after. So there's a shock <laughs> that like registers. There's this, like the foundations of a relationship, like a soldier and a boss sort of thing with Michael that he like, he can't believe. I I just love the body language of everything. He's like, he's, he gets in closer and he's like, is this the right thing? Like, this is the right thing to do. He's like, no, like everything is telling him that you should walk away here because if he was doing anything smart, he's like, you've got money put away. You could walk away from this and live a good yep. life. And it's, it's just that, that fundamental thing where he's like, no, I won't do it. And I just love, you know, it's also, you know, you would see it from knowing classical Hollywood so well is when you see amazing actors on screen, you know, their faces are the canvases. And I think De Niro's got that kind of face and um, Kilmer's just so beautiful. He's so beautiful. Yeah. He's got that face. And you've got a guy here like right in frame right now, which is poor Tom Sizemore, who's like not that guy. He's not that like so. It's like he's a, a poor sap, isn't he? He just needs <laughs> he needs someone to tell him what to do. Yeah, and his wife yeah. or Neil. In both instances, he needs that. He needs yeah, that. Yeah, and he's only got you know the one guy who's going to mislead him. And and what I love about the you know we're thinking about shot composition and framing. If we're going back to maybe classical Hollywood, although um, uh, you know it's still relevant today in movies today, is that. The minute before this when Chris is, like, declaring his um, intentions and saying what he wants um, and he's talking to Neil, they're in shot together. But in this one minute, um, there's he's only alone. Chris is only alone and we have, you know, um, Michael and Neil in shot together. Um, you know, it's over the shoulder or it's their, them just at either ends of the frame. But you kind of have like Michael looking, he wants some support from, um, from Chris, but he's getting nothing. He's there. He's the one who's, who's lost. Chris, Chris, is, 
Chris is able to stand alone in this scene, right? It's like he's been given yeah. permission. And before he's framed with Neil, but Chris is so certain that like this is where I this is where I get off to. You know, yeah. I'm out. I'm I'm this is my big job and then then I'll boost. I'm gone. I'm I'm happy to happy to leave. And he's the guy who, you know, there's no spoilers on this like like spoilers is self evident on this podcast. <laughs> so we are gonna talk about it. But it's like he's the guy who actually gets away. Like he's the guy who gets away at the end of this film. So it's it's he's he's got that certainty. But I just love I love that um it's like hard to explain like a team dynamic or like when you've got a group of people and there's someone that's slightly unsure and there's a leader and you know in this moment Michael is deeply and like I've watched the ticks of his performance, but I think it's a really great performance in this moment because it's like the ticks of someone who is deeply unsure of themselves. Because it's all this tongue movement and this and that and unsure and darting eyes and closing the distance between him and Neil and, and trying to get in there. And Neil's being very passive and, you know, trying to be supportive. Like you can see in De Niro's body language, he kind of softens his shoulders, he leans back a bit and he's like, oh, no, no, it's, you know, you're being looked after here. I, I love that. So everything about, you know, Sizemore's character, I'll just sort of like, for you know, again, Neil's so, so passive here. He's sitting against the car. He's relaxed. He's not trying to lead him down the wrong pathway he's not trying to lead him astray and he just can't he's there yeah, i love this comes in closer wants to whisper to him it's about 16 seconds into the minute yeah i know and there's the the thing that's so telling about that is that there's no one around them um yeah. you know yeah. who's he, who's he being quiet yeah who's he being quiet for yeah, you know, it's clearly something that he's learned in his body language to behave like this when he's feeling a particular way. And it wasn't until a couple of times after I'd watched this minute that I realised that he stood in. I noticed that they had got close together yeah. and I noticed that the camera hadn't moved and I thought, how are they closer together? <laughs> and then I realised that it was that it was in his body language that, was, that, that that had occurred. Um, and that's really telling that, you know, you can just, you get so roped in by Neil taking command of the scene. And he's so, I just, I mean, he's so, obviously De Niro is so good, but he's such a character in this film. Like he's, the sl- sl- slime bag isn't the right word, but he's just like everything that he does, he knows he's playing people. Yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting point because he's, especially with his crew, He's, he's, he's very, um, it's so weird. It's like an alchemy in the way that he leads this, like, you know, and, and I think Pacino says it best as Vincent Hanna in that coffee scene that come coming up, the sort of the, the pièce de résistance of this entire film, that cafe Mm -hmm. scene. Um, it's like, what are you, a monk? And I think that that's the kind of the discipline that he has, but you're right. Like he, he's the one who's following Charlene and not telling Chris, that like she's cheating on him. He's like trying mm. to keep them together because then if Chris has Charlene and she's good, then his crew is good. And he's, he's very like keeps pushing, you know, uh, Michael here to go to Elaine because his wife is that kind of bossy person too. She keeps things in charge. <laughs> she takes the money away. She does that. And he's just got, yeah, it's this weird alchemy of manipulating players. And it's, it's also the same. It's the, it's the either what lens do you place the him and Edie relationship? I like to call it fantasy land. If folks have listened to this podcast know I call it fantasy land all the time. And I don't know whether it's fantasy land, um, whether he genuinely knows he's doing a bad thing or whether he's hoping that he can be a better guy with her. Um, and there's some moments, especially towards the end of the film, where he's like, he sort of sheds a bit of a mask and he's like, 
I need you to just overcome that I'm like not a nice guy and be with me. <laughs> and and so there's some real fun that's coming up in the film with that. But you're right. He's like, there's a real, and even in all the shots, he's the anchor of this entire scene. Everyone's staged yeah. around him. And particularly yeah. in this exchange, you know, you know, you feel the gravity of him in the middle of this, you're sorry, in the right of frame here. And, you know, this is the, the exact moment, 19 seconds in where like, um, Sizemore's Michael Trito is as close to him trying to, is this the right thing to do? Is this the right thing to do? Yeah, and I love it as well that Sizemore is taller and so he's coming down, but he's still the vulnerable one. <laughs> yeah, so and good. his hands, everything. It's so good. I love the hunch. He's hunching. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, this is the first time that I've noticed you, 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 it's so strange to say, but like I do this every episode, like the first time I've noticed they don't really play too much on heights. Cause like, if you look at heights with these two guys, it's like De Niro is so relaxed from his perspective. He's sitting back on the car in this moment and he's mm. actually smaller, but if they're standing up, they're the same height. So it's just one of those weird moments. And I love, they do it a lot with Pacino cause he's a short dude and he's surrounded by all these giant guys is they all kind of lean in. They all lean into Vincent cause he's like his power, even though he's a short dude, his power is all there in all of his scenes. And, um, yeah. There's a, you know, for folks, if and I'm saying this because I know that um, Eloise is a, a a classical Hollywood PhD aficionado. There's a great moment in the 60th episode of One Heat Minute where Manola Dargis compares Pacino to Greta Garbo walking onto a stage in the scene, a very mm-hmm. Garbo-esque entrance. So that's a, a little highlight, a personal highlight of the entire show for me, but I think a, a good one for folks if you want to jump back um, and check out that. But yeah, it's it's... It's so weird, Eloise, like people coming onto the show or t- talking to me about it, is these these little passing scenes yeah. where where there's like, and it only happens for like a minute each, like basically the previous minute is Kilmer's minute and this minute is Michael's minute. Um, and then like two seconds after this minute concludes, you've got Danny Trejo just like going, yeah, whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. I wasn't even here. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I'd do anything. Um, but I love these, like the entire, you know, uh, the entire sort of momentum of the film hangs on these what seem to be fleeting, but they're like really important dramatic moments because for the rest of the movie, you get this guy who the action is the juice and he's unsure of himself. And all of this character acting, it feels like a guy who, who's probably going to get himself into a bad situation. So you're not surprised really when you hit the action and you see him get separated from the group because Chris and Neil are just so much more focused, so much more assertive. You see him make that indecision and it's like this indecision here helps you understand and echoes beautifully like to make dramatic sense of that action sequence, which is like, why would he break up from the group? Why would he break up? Because it's right now we're seeing him hunched in as close as he possibly can be. We're seeing him hunched in and, and doing this. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And, I mean, I know we've talked about it being Michael's minute, which is after Chris's minute. Um, But this minute, and, I mean, moreover this whole scene and exchange, but I think particularly in this minute, you have um, Neil. So De Niro, he's talking about – I just love this in reflection to the opening sequence of the film, because as we've said, it's kind of like the crossroads of the film. Everything hinges on this exchange here. But if we go back to the first like scene, like the opening is um, Vincent 
um, making love to his wife. Yes. And so it's this really tender introduction to someone who is like a really hardcore professional, um, you know, police officer on the street. And later on in the film, we kind of see that relationship unravel. But it's very telling that the first thing we see is this tender love scene. Yes. And the first thing we see De Niro doing is being uh, like a hardwired criminal. He's, <laughs> yes. you know, straight down the line, literally and figuratively, he's on a train, you know, so he's driven, he's, um, has direction and we don't get any sense of his personal life or him being, you know, soft or tender or loving in any way. No. Whereas by the time we get to this point, this, you know, midpoint of the film, we have, Neil admitting that he is going to leave because he's fallen in love. And I can't remember if he actually says he's fallen in love, but there's some indication that, right, he's got this. Uh, He he hasn't said it. And this is where, this is where literally in viewing to viewing my, my brain switches. It's like, does, I think for a moment he believes he's in love. He believes that that's what he wants. But that's the excuse that he's using to get out as well. Absolutely. Very much. And also, I mean, if you, it's, it's outside of this particular minute, but if you go to what Vincent's doing right now, it's the opposite. And so I think because the film hinges on the two of them being opposites, but kind of being connected for the whole time and being fascinated with one another, it's a really interesting flip that you have. Um, (laughs) And that I think this, this particular minute kind of says all of that. I love it what you said about being opposites too, because in the same by the same token, there's not really I don't really get I don't know about you as well, but I don't get the there's like a melancholy that comes with the relationship of Vincent and Justine. So the amazing um, um, uh, their amazing relationship uh, is around they've got this genuine love, but yeah. they've they're kind of don't. They haven't, well, especially with Vincent, he hasn't carved out time in his life to to like cultivate it. And so mm-hmm. Diane Venora, who's just a, incredible in every scene she's in in this movie. I um, love her so much. I can't get enough. I can't get enough of Diane Venora. She's like one of those people that um, every single time I watch her, I'm just I'm more stunned. And what I'm, so this is me like putting away a serious blind spot in my life, like right now as we record. I watched. Bob Fosse's all that jazz for the first time, like two nights ago. Amazing. And I just, I just couldn't believe how, um, like how incredible, um, how energized, uh, just like the filmmaking, the filmmaking chops, Roy Scheider, just every bit of it. It's got Diane Venora in it, like as that ethereal, you know, spiritual woman that's sort of haunting him in those like little passive scenes. We get this sort of stage window into his brain and she's so amazing in this and they've got this great tenderness and she does such a great job of making rounding out her character. So there's a lot of melancholy there that it's not going to work. So you kind of get that feeling, but with Neil and Edie, they have to kind of play that game, like try and make it as sincere as possible. Let him do these little affectations in the bedroom with her and things like that. So yeah, it's really interesting. You say about the opposites of both of these guys at that moment, because even, even though Vincent's all loving, there's a there's a problem, and even though Neil's is in fantasy land and should be in love, we know there's a problem. We know that these guys are made for each other. I think that's like that great that great sort of destination we're heading towards. Yeah, yeah. Well, that line, you know, that 
uh, Justine says to Vincent, you live among the remains of dead people, is could be applied to Neil. Like, it, no worries. It is, a, it is a ripper of a line. That is like every, nearly every, um, every Justine line, every Diane Venora line, she's just, how good yeah. is she? Yeah. How good she's, is she? Yeah. Yeah, so good in this film and so, you know, surprising constantly the whole time and, you know, I mean, more happens later, but she's just, she's there and what I, I think, I actually don't get enough from, from Edie as a character. Yeah. I don't think she's full enough. She doesn't satisfy my need for, a, in a film essentially about the behaviour of men. Um, and I'm not saying as a woman and a feminist that I hate movies that do that because I don't, I find them fascinating, but in a movie about the behavior of men, I don't think that she's strong enough, but I think that Justine absolutely is. And I think that, um, I can't remember her name, but Natalie Portman's like character is also full enough as, as a woman. Well, I mean, she's not a woman at this point, but as a girl is, is full enough. Little Lauren, Justine's daughter. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that the two of them together paint this really fascinating portrait. It's like, it's when I began this show, that Justine character, she just kept blooming for me because like there's certain things like you you go, okay, I'm going to start this project. And I remember like really a couple of really like scrutinizing viewings where I just tried to watch it with fresh eyes. And Mm -hmm. what happened really early with me was like when she's taking, like I'd never even noticed probably in a million watchings of it, like just her taking, or maybe didn't register, like taking ambient or whatever she's taking or valium mm-hmm. at the end of their sex sexual encounter when it doesn't really quite work she's got like a postcoital cigarette but then she's downing drugs and she walks yeah. down the stairs and she's kind of in a daydream and you see that she's like she's squashing all the neurosis that poor little lauren has and so like i feel as lauren's a controversial character for some people because it's like i don't know this is a very adult movie so i get a lot of opinions uh, on the show and folks who know who are listening they're just like, oh, Natalie Portman's character sucks in this movie. And I feel so deeply – I've got, like, a, an affection for her. I feel like I've, I've changed. You know, when I was younger, I was like, get this kid out of the way. Who cares about what she's doing? But now I'm like, this poor this poor girl. Um, yeah. And th- both those characters work. There's actually a really fascinating deleted scene that is exactly after this scene. Um, and and uh, Ian and I talked about Ian Barr and I talked about it on the previous episode, but I thought it was a great one for for us to bring up is that you bring up like Justine being a whole character and you know uh, Lauren being a whole character, but like characters like Lauren and Michael, they only get a chance to be ciphers and like and it's really you bring so much to those cipher characters and certain characters are perfect like that, like you just get enough of them. You get a morsel of them to ch- sort of chew on, and they're just perfect in the to complement the things that are happening around them. And in, there's another scene that happens after this where you see the fallout for Michael. Like he goes home. This is the deleted scene. He goes home, and his wife's there, and she's like, "What's up?" And he's like, "Uh." Oh. And you sort of see him like see his kids, see his wife, and have a bit of that moment where he's like, "Did I make the right decision?" Yeah. And it's one of those perfect things where you go, "It is perfect for that scene to be deleted." Because you don't want him to go home and like, and be the guy who's like, oh, my kids. Because it might not seem like he'd be the guy that in that gunfight would pick up a kid and use her as a shield. Yeah. But a guy who says the action is the juice would totally do that. You're like, yeah, he would do that. He would just do anything to get out of that situation. 
because I was thinking, you know, you don't get enough of his kind of home life and an understanding of why, you know, he would need to get out. And so that's really good because it does make it believable that he makes this decision in the end of of this conversation. And he says that, but also that, the um that it was meant to be right after this yes because i think like i was thinking about the music because i don't love everything about the music in this film sometimes i mean okay yeah like sometimes that's good i want i want i want your expertise talk to me talk to me well sometimes i i just need a a, you know situational kind of silence in a film and, and I need things to calm down and I want to know what the sound effects are doing. And I have watched a lot of Michael Mann films in the past doing like a sound effects kind of study and you very rarely get a moment of uh, musical silence yeah. in that sense. And so um, there... Unless, unless it's so deliberate and one that just pops up is like um, uh, in like Miami Vice, there's like this mm-hmm. a few really tactical calms before the storm you know they're about to they're about to uh uh, break into steal steal pretend to be haitian smugglers and steal stuff from drug dealers or they're about to break into you know some white trash uh trailer that they end up going into like everything quiets down you can almost hear crickets and but it's just for like a a fraction of a second of like incidental sounds but there's usually music even in that great what people I think imagine is a silent scene where you've got the um, like the preceding moments here where they're looking at through the infrared and things like that. It's just got this like, I want to call it like a, um, you know, Niall Schwartz who was on the show talked about it like this. It's like a, um, an orchestra tuning up. It's a liggity um, Mm -hmm. piece of music um, uh, in there, but it's like, it's this slowly building, you know, almost like a dog whistle. You can sort of hear yeah. it, but it's not dead silent. It's yeah. It's never dead silent. I mean, yeah. So I, I, in this particular minute that we're watching, the music is really awkward and it's meant to be awkward because it's the scene is awkward. The discussion is awkward. They're three guys who usually just do dude things. You know, they're professional criminals, but here they're having this awkward conversation and they're admitting their, you know, their flaws or their vulnerabilities at least. And so the music really keys into that and it sounds like I was thinking about this motif that occurs in a lot of well I'm thinking of the particular 80s neo-noir body heat yes sound of the wind chimes which is incredible and I love it so so much but this sounds like a synthesized wind chimes that are just going wrong like the wind doesn't know what it's doing and these wind chimes are going nuts. Um, and that's what this, that's what the music in this minute sounds like to me. And it's so important because it allows the music to escalate in the following scene. Yes. Which it does very, very quickly. It escalates and it's this heavy beat and it's, you know, cuts to that, that scene where they're no longer in, in they- daylight. And they, and they literally look like they're in a film clip because because yeah. Pacino and his team are just like trudging, do, 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 like walking through and it's it hits so perfect. But you're right. It's like it's it, there's kind of a weird incongruity with what we're watching here because you could drop a lot of the sound out here because it yeah. feels like, you know, a couple of couple of things I've, um, you know, sort of observed and people are talking about in this in, in this particular sequence um, 
it's like that it's an alien landscape. It's like very highly technological. It's deserted. Um, and, you know, when I say chicken wire, maybe I've watched the conversation too many times, but when I say chicken wire, I think of the conversation and the great use or, you know, lack of sound that's in that movie with Coppola or except for the the revolving recording, you know, the incredible use of sound in that. But I just love in uh, – you could totally have played this with silence, um, but it's but like you said, it's got to play this weird, awkward incongruity that can build up and then smash into the yeah. next scene. Like I don't think that the in- introduction of that that music would work in the following scene no. if you didn't have this kind of undercurrent here. It and would feel what- too much like a film clip. Yeah. Like it would yeah. feel like a film clip because it's like you know there's just straight in, straight in in that next sequence if it does that. But uh, otherwise, otherwise it's just like. Yeah, Perfect. yeah. See, when I when I see this chicken wire, and when I see these this you know essentially wide open space, it I mean it's interesting because you can connect the wide open space in this minute to the finale. Yes, obviously. And um, Michael Mann is clearly so well known for filming Los Angeles, for filming it from a distance, for filming its like metropolitan kind of grandeur. Whereas this scene is just kind of nothing. Yes. Right? So it is this, it could be anywhere, it could be, you know, nothing in particular, it could be in the city, it could not be, it it doesn't really matter. But I, there are so many scenes in in old film noir, classic noir, that are filmed, you know, against chicken wire, essentially, suggesting, you know, the end of the line or that people have run out, you know like a, um, an old car yard where someone is gone to die, you know, a, a sign where it says, like, no way. <laughs> so yeah. it, it does have these, and even though it's in daylight, it does have all of these connections still to the noir in the city of Los Angeles, and that's, you know, what's really kind of interesting for me because it is such an important kind of crux of the film. And, and to, like I was just saying, two years later, um, it's so funny that you said, as soon as you said the end of the line, I'm like, it's two years later, Curtis Hansen brings out LA Confidential, which is one of the best American films of the 90s and echoes all of those great noir tropes in that same way. And yeah. I remember that old cruddy hotel that is the famous you know, hideout for some uh, uh, illegal activities from police and then the famous shootout at the end of the film. And it's surrounded by that same chicken wire and an oil, an old timey sort of oil uh, well there uh, trudging oil along. Or, Good, yeah. Yeah, oil Derek, that's right. Just sort of trudging <laughs> along, surrounded by chicken wire. And there is chicken wire in Chinatown. Ch- Chinatown's yeah. got the chicken wire next to the aqueducts when he's investigating. Yeah, is that right? right. And he clutches onto it. Yes. Nicholson, he clutches onto it and it's like James Stewart clutching onto the edge of the building at the start of the <laughs> Yes. Same kind of position. Yeah. Oh, look, we've just connected LA Confidential, Vertigo, <laughs> Chinatown, and Heat, and I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Amazing. Um, yeah. It's, um, yeah, I, Elliot Goldenthal's score, I've started to really unpack it. I'm just going to bring it up. I'm going to sort of, as we're talking, but, um, you know, so Goldenthal's score is something that I've just continued to be in awe of, like overall. But as I've unpacked it, there's some really amazing other bits of music used. And obviously the most famous one, and we talked about the end, you know, the final minute of the film or final moments of the film is the incredible Moby score. Um, so which is the, the track God Moving Over the Face of Waters, which just gets me every time. Um, and, uh, but the score here, I'll just see like there's there's some really, 
So we've got Late Evening in Jersey. It's a Brian, o- Brian Eno track. There's tracks from Passengers. Um, there's another Brian, o- in- Brian Eno track. Um, and there's actually two. There's New F- Dawn Fades is the high pace electric uh, electronic uh, moment where Pacino and De Niro, oh, sorry, Pacino is racing after De Niro in the car before the coffee scene. Um, that's another one. And yeah, just going through, because um, I was, uh, I was pointed out that um, it was uh, the Ligeti track, the concerto for violoncello and orchestra by Ligeti um, was in there and in amongst it. And it's like this weird, I don't know, it's like a weird flow, like Elliot Goldenthal's using some of these tracks as well, but they're all kind of dialed into this weird, uh, almost like horror movie sometimes score that happens in the film. Like there's that, I think that's what it, it tweaks to me sometimes, like... Yeah, interesting you say that, like, you know, things that sounds are uh, atonal, things don't quite work, you know, like, things seem as though they're an unsettling wind chime yeah, <laughs> kind, yeah. Of, kind of noise, and then you've got this heavy, and it does it's not heavy metal, but, you know, it kind of becomes this heavier kind of rock soundtrack that, that occurs as well, um, so there's a lot going on. It's, 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 I'm wondering I'm if wondering Michael if Mann... Michael Mann ever really just wanted to have a Trent Reznor score. Like he's like, he's aching for it. Like David Fincher has kind of got a mortgage on Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross kind of scores that flow between this sort of languid, you know, piano to this like heavy electronica. And it's like, it's like a match made in heaven that has just never quite actually made it around in either, in either person's career. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we should ask him. (laughs) Oh, Look, Eloise, if there was a if there was a moment, if you, I tell everyone on the show, the dream is Michael Mann last episode. I want, I would love him to be on the last episode of the show. So I'm just going to say it. I'm going to keep putting it out there in the universe until and maybe it happens. Maybe, maybe it'll come true. Maybe it'll come true. Um, but yeah, look, uh, that I almost shudder to think of getting to that episode because if I literally, if I if I just asked him every question, like random question that I had like that as we went, I think the podcast might go for 45 hours, which is not a bad thing, but I don't think he's going to have enough time to fit me in. Um, so we get to the we get to the crux of this minute. We're looking through and it's all this awkwardness. I love this revelation shot. I love this shot of Alcum's face. I love all the framing of Kilmer in, in these moments when he's really sure. Um, and Michael Mann talked about you know, in a recent viewing, he was talking about the Toronto International Film Festival in a Q&A. He was like, I, what strikes me on a big screen is their eyes. Like, he's like, all of my performance do such an amazing job conveying the emotions of their characters to their eyes. I just love Kilmer here. He's never been more pretty and um, he's got that great intensity. Totally. And... and there's something to be said, like, uh, uh, even here, like, look at how nice Robert De Niro is trying to be. He's been trying to be so charming as he shares really close frame. He's, like, being really nice and he understanding. Pretty, like, got a furrowed brow. Yeah. yeah, like, come on, this is the right thing, to, you know, very encouraging. And then I love this. He just, it's like 39 seconds. Tom Sizemore starts getting ticks. He's like blinking. He looks back at stoic, awesome Val Kilmer and he just cannot, he cannot have weakness in that moment. I love that. He looks at, it's like 46 seconds. He looks at Val Kilmer and he's like, he's so strong. He's so sure. 
he's so strong. He looks like a big lug in that. I, I, it's just coming to me now, just looking at it. Like he looks like this big lug and, you know, he's kind of like this guy in all of the movies who's the big guy that, who's dumb. And he's not dumb, obviously, but he can be manipulated. So, you know, his, his size here is not a tool. Um, it's, in fact, you know, maybe – you know, the worst thing that could happen to him, really. And he's wearing an oversized, disgusting jacket. Like, I really don't know what material it's made out of. You can see the threads. It's 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 making him look more like a lug as well. Like, it's like he's anything that's oversized, nothing's tight. And, you know, in, in his sort of, like, shining earlier moment in the film where he, like, he's in the... They're in the diner with Wayne Grow and he stares down that guy who notices that Neil's like bashing Wayne Grow's head against the wall and he's he looks very svelte. He looks very but even here it's just the design. Like he's in this moment he's meant to be the lug. I think that's the perfect description. He's like meant to be the lug. So we're gonna get him in an oversized coat. We're gonna make him, you know, in this moment, we're gonna make him be unsure of what he's gonna do. And yeah. then here he goes. The action is the juice. I'm in. I mean, why does he say that? Is it because he thinks that that's the way to prove himself? I don't know why he says it, but I think I I don't I don't think like it's there's another point in the movie where a character says that, and it's it's Wango. So after Wango escapes, and after he hurts you know and kills that really poor unfortunate prostitute, he goes into the bar to sign up for new work, and he's like he's like oh I'm a cowboy. I like anything heavy. Like he, he, he's sort of talking himself up in that moment. And I feel like almost after we've seen all this indecision and things like that, the only thing that can, they know how heavy this job's going to be. Basically they know how big this bank job is going to be. And so the only thing that he can actually say is that, but it feels so much like it's the line that people say like, Oh, the action is the juice. Right. And like, but it's such, it's really sad, like to, to point it out, like it's him trying to convince himself that that's what is the case. Yeah. The action is the juice. I'm in. And so you're like, you've just seen him agonize to get to that point. It's the only thing that he can say to Neil to convince him why he would want to do the job because he doesn't need the money. He's got all the savings. He's got a family. He could walk away right now and make a total fine life of it. Yeah, and we see that look on Chris's face when he says it, and Chris is like, I don't fucking buy this, mate. <laughs> you know, he's just there. He's just like, no, I don't I love know. He's he sort of, he's, he, there's a there's a split second. I'm going to just like freeze frame it. So that's exactly the end of the minute. But there's this like, he looks over, he looks <laughs> over, and there's like a, he, he does like this tiny smile, bang, there it is. This little smile, like this fucking guy. This fucking guy. Yep. I can't believe he just said that. Um, but yeah, like that's the guy. Like I'm. It's so hard to imagine. And that's- I, yeah, it, it is. I really like this. That this kind of scene, this conversation, takes so long and is so well thought out. And um, I mean, you you wouldn't expect anything else in a film that's almost three hours, right? Mm. That that things would occur quickly, but this kind of like um, formation of the gang leader, um, the the sidekick who's also capable, and then the dud in the group is <laughs> yeah. like a classic formation, right? But often 
and not that it's unbelievable or uh, poorly scripted. It's just, you know, part of the archetype set up in cinema is that the, the dud in the group is kind of, you don't know why he's a dud. You just assume that he is. Whereas here it's so well scripted and so well acted that you can get to all of it. Um, and that's why this, this kind of conversation takes so long and that's why the framing is really important because you can really see into, you know, his eyes essentially and understand that it's, he's not just a black and white kind of failure, but that there's more going on there. Yeah, much more. And the pressure, this is the thing I, I hadn't drawn this connection before, but like the intimidation of Neil being so sure and certain that he can do anything and that they're going to get out of it and this is worth it. Paired now with Chris, it's like the ultimate peer pressure because even you see it with Neil when he goes to poor Don Breeden, who's the amazing Dennis Hayes, but, you know, he goes to him and he's like, I've got a job for you. Like this is another point in the film that the whole thing could pivot. They could just leave. They, I mean, <laughs> they've lost their driver. It's the day of the robbery. They really should just get the hell out of there. Like it's, it's another thing that could go pear-shaped. But Neil goes to a guy who's got a job, whose wife stood by him, even though his job sucks, and he gives him like an impossible thing, which is to say yes to leave his job right now and help me go take down a huge bank job, which could have massive risks. And it's straight through the front door and it's crazy. And he convinces him. Like there's something so crazy about that. And then in this scene, when you're faced with Chris and Neil, like the poor lug, he didn't, he never had a chance. Yeah. And so, like, you go, this poor bastard. And that's why it's so tragic when his poor wife, Elaine, who we see for, like, a split second later on in the film, like, see him, that the fact that he's dead on the news. She's just like, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Like, she's just devastated, but she's like, God, I did everything to try and not get him back into that yeah. situation. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, so fa- it's all part of the, this, I, this, the, the fatalism of noir and the crime film, right, yeah. is that there's yeah. every single avenue here is a dead end for them. Um, so you have the, the actual setup, which is not going to work because it's too big a job. You have the relationship between the three of them that is awkward already. Um, you have that fatalism with, with um, Michael and his wife where she has said time and again that this is going to get you killed and this is the end kind of thing. So in so many different avenues, this fatalism is just bleeding into the the film. Um, and I, a few episodes ago, I heard you, I think it was the, one of the episodes with Craig Matheson, you mentioned a, an article that spoke about, you know, whether these modern films could be made in black and white or released in black and white. And we're imagining heat in black and white, right? As yes. this pure noir kind of kind of construct. But I don't think that's necessary here because you have so much else working for it. And I feel like the colour is not even really that rich in heat. No, and so no. it's like there are a few of those shots of the grid, right? The Los Angeles grid that look like fire. Yes. But but beyond that, colour isn't really doing anything. And so I think that you have enough classical tropes of the noir set up to make it just work. I mean, you could turn this into a black and white film and it would look stunning, but it wouldn't be any different. No, it doesn't it doesn't change it. It's much like Chinatown. 
I think some people in their memory. Chinatown benefits from the colour though, yeah. like more so than than heat. Oh yeah, because Chinatown's got feels. Chinatown feels like you're looking at someone's yellowing teeth yeah. for the entire movie. Like it's the it's a it's the yellow teeth Los Angeles noir. You know, it's got that. Yeah, it's it could in in some moments it's golden and in some moments it's rotten sulfur. Like it just it's just something so perfect about the the grading and everything in the way that that was shot. It's so perfect. And here it's all about cool. It's all about the you know the blue is cools and the greys and it's Michael Mann at that sort of perfect best where it's sort of that synthesis of grey and cool and cold. Um, but yeah, I think it's like the way that it's shot too. It's like when black and white people have that connotation that it's got a classic and you see modern black and white films that um, have that same classic feel, but at the same time, I think it's, it's just style. It's like they're, they're intending to do something. And here the intention is really strong, even though they're not using black and white. But I, yeah. I don't know, maybe it's, it's, it's for me, it's like, um, There's an inescapable thing is as soon as I think of it in black and white, I, I, there's going to be a fun bonus episode that's definitely coming up and um, uh, Eloise might have to play along from home, which is like recasting Heat through the ages and like Heat as the John Huston film, you know, that has, um, you know, that that you can then, Heat as the John Huston era film like where you're like, oh, who who would I cast in this movie? Who would be those two perfect guys? That's where I start I to get all excited. Definitely play that game. <laughs> we need to get like a uh, like a bingo card, like where you just write <laughs> down or you stick different actors from different eras together to put together your roster. But that's where I start going down the rabbit hole. I'm like, oh, God, what would Heat look like in 74? It's like one of my yeah. favorite movie years. I'm like, what would Heat look like in 74? Who would yeah. – what, what would it look like? And then what about 84? Yeah, 10 years earlier. What, other, what two pairings would I put in there? But, but then saying that, I do feel – have you read – you probably have because it's quite a well-known book that um, Mike Davis's City of Courts. Have you read his book? No, I haven't. So I um, studied this – you know, used this book kind of as a, an essay resource when I was an undergrad writing on film noir. And it's written in, I think, 1990, um, so before Heat, but he did re-release it and kind of has an introduction where he talks about all of the structural and social changes in Los Angeles in the 1990s that that contributed to its shift as like an urban landscape um, and as a place, you know, a geographical kind of hub. And he talks about regional immobility, manufacturing decline, um, inequality of the permanent healthcare crisis and terminal suburbs, which I think is really interesting. But in that, I mean, I think that heat is so tied to 1995 that that you can maybe have a fun time imagining it as this general crime film of the um, the detective, the hunter and the hunted being obsessed with each other, which is a story for the ages, oh, of course. Story for the ages. But that as it's like big winding narrative, I mean, all of these things that Mike Davis lists are, are integral to the film, of course, you know, in the setting and the way that it, that they all manifest together. And so I think that it's so tied to the, the 1990s <laughs> that we could cast it back. And the other thing that I have a real difficulty with, and this is why it's so perfectly suited to that period, is you have two guys at the centre of the film who've had who burst on the scene in new Hollywood, you know, late sixties, early seventies. And they have like 20, nearly 30 years of history running mm -hmm. into each other. They come out of the same 
they come out of the same genres, they come from the same influences, they've always had inescapable comparisons. There aren't any equivalencies in almost any decade after that. Like you can play fun games that you like around that period, but I have a real trouble of going, even in the last 20 years, who are two actors that are working in Hollywood that we're comparing that just haven't run into each other yet? It's like it's impossible. Like who are they? Who are these two people that have like that is that are dodging each other in Hollywood? There's not like they don't, they don't exist. They don't, you know. That level of like this level of star power doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. In anyone under the age of fifty, I don't think. No. You know, that kind of creation, the way that our media works, doesn't really operate in we that do, way. We don't allow it. We will not allow it. <laughs> We move too fast, which, you know, has its benefits, but I think also has its um, negatives. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, ladies and gents, this has been an awesome minute chatting to Eloise Ross. Eloise, thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. It's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Blake. You're welcome. And um, Mike Davis's City of Courts, I'm finding that, as always, if you check out oneheatminute.com, most of the episodes and my awesome guests, like um, I'll link everything so you can find Eloise and find her writings and, and find her awesome podcast. But I will go, I usually go and find the little uh, reading list suggestions for us as well. So I'll throw that in there as well so you guys can find it. Um, at Eloise Low Ross on Twitter. Um, Eloise, E-L-O-I-S-E-L-O Ross on Twitter um, and you can listen and subscribe and rate and review Cultural Capital Podcasts at a whole bunch of other outlets and things like that you can find anywhere you download podcasts or listen to this show, you can do the same for those guys, I strongly recommend it um, Garth Franklin, thank you for our web design, Paul Davies, thank you for our awesome theme and Eloise, thank you again Thanks Blake, I look forward to listening to more episodes Thank you so much guys Another minute of One Heat Minute is coming around the corner for you very soon. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.